Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to begin this morning with two questions. Um, based on this phrase in verse 8, Peter speaks about a rejoicing, he says, with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So the two questions. The first one is, do you want that? Do you want joy inexpressible and filled with glory? And for the sake of time, I'm going to answer that question for you. You do. Uh, so, now, so, so maybe that language is a little bit different from how you think, but I think any of us here, if we had joy inexpressible filled with glory, there would be something so satisfying about that that we would realize that often the desires that are under the various things we're pursuing is really are looking for that. So we want it, but here's the second question. Do you have it? Now, on the one hand, that question could also be answered kind of quickly, which is to say none of us have it in this fullness. We really say that we exist in a state with joy inexpressible, filled with glory. One of the promises of Christianity, Jesus says, trust me and, and follow me. And yes, there's joy that comes into your life now, but one day uh, you will be joined into something that, that will satisfy all that you're longing for. And so there will be an inexpressible joy filled with glory. So the easy answer is, well, none of us have it in fullness. But the more difficult, the more complicated answer is, but do we have it at all? And that's where each of us might answer the question a bit differently. Some of you would say, yes, I do have joy. There is something that's, that's deep and, and, and there and real. And there is glory, there's beauty, there's transcendence, there's hope. All of these things are there somewhere in my life or at certain portions of my life. Some of us might honestly say, uh, it's not there often. Or maybe the ratio is I have a moment every now and then, but the bulk of my life does not have that. And so it becomes a hard question because the way most of us are primed to think in terms of our independence, um, our, our goal keeping, uh, how we are oriented to the world, is if I don't have this kind of joy, something I want and something I could have to a certain degree, even if we're realistic about our expectations, uh, if I don't have it, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. And so there could be a guilt. What's wrong with me that I don't have it? And then it gets complicated when you ask the question in the context of faith. Because anybody would be able to say, honestly, I don't have this in fullness and, 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 and want it, and, and why is it I can't attain it? 
But in a, in a church gathering where, where the context of the passage is, well, Christian faith makes this possible, then it's not simply what's wrong with me in general that I don't have joy, but what's wrong with me if I'm a Christian that I don't not even have a fullness of it, but a, a persistence with it. And so today we're going to talk about faith because we can easily get confused and think, I must not believe, be believing enough. And we double down to try to believe harder, thinking that will be the path to joy. And faith definitely is the path. But we get confused about it, and therefore we're going to talk about faith today a little bit uh, because it can maybe clarify some things that will posture us better to start to experience more of this joy, uh, if possible. We're in a sermon series in 1 Peter, highlighting the theme of spiritual vitality. And uh, we've been in this one section of 1 Peter, we're moving on next week, but we've been in this for now, the, this is the fourth week. But he talks about our being born again to a living hope. There's a, there's a new life, a, a rebirth, a spiritual life that is transformative. That's what we're told that Christianity invites us into. And yes, it's gradual, and yes, we need to be patient, but it's something we're meant to start to experience now. And it's important to talk about now because the world has not functioned over the last 19 months as it normally has, and lots of things are breaking down, but it's not just the supply chain. Uh, it's our emotional lives. It's our how we're feeling spiritually, and therefore it's worth our uh, in a period where we may feel spiritually dry, we may not have deep faith to say, but what will sustain us? What will uh, bring us forward? We're talking about that in general, but today, is there a way of living the Christian life that does bring joy into your life? Not that it makes you happy all the time, not that you have that fullness yet, but we should have something that, that produces joy in our lives. And so we're going to talk about faith today, because in verse 5 it says, by God's power, you are being guarded through faith. Verse 7 talks about the tested genuineness of your faith. And so the, the, the path of growing as a Christian is not that we go from having no faith to having faith, but we have faith in all sorts of things that don't really produce joy in us, to we're supposed to have a more focused, growing, genuine faith that is effective in our lives. And so for us to mature in a genuine faith, a healthy faith, a life-producing, joy-giving faith, uh, well, then there's a number of things we need. Today I'm going to talk about three, just from the context of the passage. So first, for genuine faith to mature, you need to be specific where you place it. You need to be specific where you place your faith, if you want genuine faith to mature. So uh, the Christian message is not you need to believe. Uh, that is, is actually, uh, it's interesting how in the broader culture people recognize the value of, of faith, of conviction, of belief. Sometimes there's this, this phrase, you just got to believe. And Jesus says, doesn't say you just got to believe as if believing itself or believing in anything is good. But there are certain things that are true and you, you have to believe those things because if you do, you'll find life in them. So, so it's not a matter of do you have faith, but... But where is our faith? And part of maturing is in time focusing. And so we want to be specific what we hope in, what we have faith in, what we're believing. And so this passage gives us two things that are, are the kinds of um, content or promises or substance of Christian faith. One is a future reality. So verses 3 and 4, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and here's the point, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So he's not talking about another place. He's talking about a, a future reality that, that we're moving towards. And he's saying there's an inheritance kept for those who trust, those who are looking to him, those who are waiting, who are believing. And he's writing to a community that he has, he has described as exiles. So these are people who don't feel at home in the world. And he's writing to people who are suffering. And he's saying as the world is is tearing down the things that, that you believe in, the good things, your identity, your possessions, your comfort, whatever these things are, whether they're explicit enemies who are persecuting you or just the dysfunctions of the world, as you're being worn down, Peter writes to say there's something that cannot be touched by these people. Entropy, the laws of physics, doesn't affect the inheritance. And so there's something being kept for you. And it's described as imperishable, undefiled, unfading. So one thing that we are to believe is that God promises uh, a good future for those who are striving, trusting, waiting. You don't earn it, he will give it to you. But that's the beauty of it. There's a future reality to say that no matter how this season of life pans out for you, the whole of your life will amount to something because of the kindness of God. He's keeping something that he intends to give to you. And so that's something that if we believe that helps us, especially when the markets don't act in our favor, when our employer needs to downsize and we're the first to go. There's something steadfast that we can hold to, so there's content there. But here's a second thing. So there's a future reality that's meant to bring joy in the present, but there is a present reality. We're not just idealists. We're not just wishfully hoping that this will one day prove itself to be true, even if there's substance for believing it. But verse five, so in, in verse four it says, these things are kept in heaven for you. So the inheritance is undefiled being kept. But now here's something about you, the person who believes if you're a believer. In verse five, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. And so the future reality is an inheritance that God in his kindness will give you, that will bring you a fullness of joy. Um, but in the present, you're being guarded by what? Are we being guarded by our faith? Is my faith the thing that protects me? We're being urged to continue to trust God. Don't lose heart, don't give up faith, uh, keep going. Is it my faith that protects me? And this says, you're being kept by God's power. You're being guarded by God's power through faith. It's not our faith that's sustaining us. It's God and his power that is sustaining us. Our faith is believing that, <laughs> holding on to that. And it's an important distinction because our faith sometimes fails. We're told God's power does not. And so the hope is not that you're believing, the hope is that God is powerful, that he really guards and watches over those who are his. And as our faith is failing, we then look to God and say, uh, Help me, I can no longer keep myself, guard and protect me. And one of the um, theological debates throughout history, uh, especially the recent 500 years, has been, uh, what is the nature of Christian salvation? Is it by faith or is it by works? 
The idea is do we do things that keep God uh, rewarding us or is it faith? And, and framed that way, is it faith or is it works is a bit misleading because it's actually neither of those. Our hope is not in our works, our hope is not in our faith, our hope is in God and his grace. Uh, but then we realize we don't, haven't earned his grace, so don't look at your works and what you've done. But, but what happens is we realize it's through faith, so faith is essential because faith is how we receive it, faith is how we live it, faith is how we hold on to it. But the danger is that we exchange um, actions that we think earn God's favor to functionally emotions that earn God's favor. That's the danger if we misunderstand this. That's not what the passage is talking about. Works are important. You need to live an upright life. Faith is important. You need to believe with great fervor from the depth of your being. But the hope is in the power of God. And therefore, when your works are not good enough, he's still kind to you. And when your faith is failing, don't spend your time evaluating whether your faith is good enough. Spend your time thinking about whether or not God and his power will really bring you through. And when you believe that he does, then your faith is at work. We don't look at our works, we don't look at our faith, we look at God and his power. And then in believing it produces works, and that's the paradigm, but it's a God-centered way of making sure we're sustained. And, and here's where we mature in Christian, Christianity. We realize that faith, okay, faith in Christ is something that's produced by God opening our eyes spiritually. But faith itself is not something that human beings don't have. And, and, and for some of you, especially if you're not Christian, um, it, it could be strange to think about what is the nature of this Christian faith. Now, it is something dynamic, vibrant, unique that is God-given. But it's not all that different from the way that we live, which is... All of us live by faith. We just have certain criteria uh, for evaluating what we think is worth believing, and there's so much that is unquestioned. And Christian faith is about starting to question, starting to focus, and, and evaluating the criteria which has substance. Uh, there's a book uh, that's been quite popular by Yuval Noah Harari called Sapiens, and it's meant to be a history of humanity and accounting for the human story. Um, and one of the things uh, that he says in the book, or, or one of the points that he tries to, to develop, is that one of the things that makes human beings different from other species is our ability to work collectively on a grand scale. Um, and because of that, we are able to do things that other species aren't able to do. And uh, so his explanation, how is it that we are able to work together on a much greater level? And his answer is because of these fictions that people make up. Uh, because of things that we believe that aren't necessarily fact or true, uh, but are part of the human experience. And so, so um, my impression of the author Harari is that he's not a religious person. So certainly for him, religion would, would fit the criteria of fiction. It's made up. It's not that there are gods, it's not that these rituals have done anything, it's something that people have made up in order to help them function. Now that's not uncommon that people would have that kind of criticism of religion. What's interesting about Harari is that he's basically saying it's not just religious people, it's, it's the whole of humanity. So one of the things he talks about is human rights. According to him, there's no such thing. Human rights is not a thing, it's not a fact, it's something we've made up. Now he's not against it, he's not saying it's a problem, He's, and he's not American, he's just saying when Americans say there are these fundamental inalienable rights, 
you just want there to be, so you made that up. And if everybody agrees to it and lives out of it, you can expect certain uh, things to come from it. But basically, this is a fiction. It's, it's the concept of human rights. Again, he's not saying it's a bad thing, but he's just saying it's not fact. Uh, he goes to a number of examples like that. Another one, what he says the most interesting or maybe the most fundamental fiction in modern society is money. You know, how does that work? He says if you look in the animal kingdom, you could imagine uh, certain kinds of behaviors that would be rational. So uh, one chimpanzee has a banana, another chimpanzee has an apple. They're making an exchange would make sense. That wouldn't surprise you that two chimpanzees would do that. You give me, uh, or even if they could somehow communicate half my banana, half your apple. If they could figure that out, uh, that wouldn't be surprising. What Harari says is what you don't see is I have a banana and you have a piece of paper. And I'm going to give you my banana for your paper. And then you'll take that paper and put it together with other papers you have and go to somebody else who you've never met who did not see this and exchange those papers for something that that person has. How does that work? Well, everybody needs to have some buy-in, some belief. Um, what's, what is it about that paper? Now, again, there's meant to be something, some value that it represents in terms of the gold standard or whatever ways that we create a foundation. So you can't just make up a currency entirely. You know, uh, people are making up currencies today, but there needs to be something of substance, <laughs> something that we believe to say, you know, if I'm going to actually have that be by uh, currency of exchange, I can't be the only one who believes that. So that's why we're nervous with the new things, you know. Um, if I buy into this and nobody else does, what happens? And I wind up with nothing. What Harari is saying is that we have great faith that we never question. Now, his goals are different from my introducing this today, but, but I'm, I'm bringing that up to say, uh, here's somebody who's pointing out, um, in a way that's not, not entirely sound, the book is a, a great book, but I, I'm not necessarily recommending it wholesale. But I think it's interesting that here you have somebody who objectively is saying, well, human beings are filled with faith. That's the very way that we work. The question is, what is your faith in? And part of the Christian experience is actually asking the questions, thinking about deep things, and then a, a spiritual process where you realize uh, a growing awareness. I have believed all along all sorts of things that I've never questioned. Some of them good, but, but a lot of them problematic. Or have had great faith in certain things that aren't worthy, that can't sustain that faith. And so part of maturing is an awareness that I am a person who is called to believe. Everything can't be proven. So I, I go into the world needing to believe certain things, and I have certain criteria, but, but the deep questions of life, life after death, who, who, who has the uh, credentials to tell us about that? Um, there's something compelling about Jesus to say, if he could answer those deep questions, trust him as he leads you through life, and then you'll find that as your faith matures, that the process is sometimes through disappointment. I realized there were things that I just assumed that as a young person, I would be healthy for a long period of time. I never saw this diagnosis. It completely has shaken me. This is the, uh, the kind of thing that we think um, because I just, I just believed that I would be fine until uh, a certain age or I just thought my job was secure or I thought my parents really got along. I didn't realize how much they were arguing in the room. You know, the kinds of things that we realize, I believed certain things that I find out is not true it could be crushing. The process of Christian growth and sanctification is as we're being disappointed, we're, we have a place to, to take the faith that's now eroded and not just dismiss it, but to, to put it in a central place that could bear the weight. Is there something being kept 
that's undefiled, unfading. Um, you want your hope to be in that. Is there a God whose power will guard you through the struggles of life? You want, you want your faith to be placed in something that will sustain you. And so, uh, yeah, life is dynamic. We're filled with surprises, disappointments. We're told we all have faith. You're just going to find out over time, Christian or not, that the things that you believe in uh, aren't able to sustain themselves. The Christian advantage is, as we're being disappointed, we're being shown something of greater substance. And so, therefore, as we're experiencing our struggles, we have something that could also eventually produce joy. And so, uh, where is your faith? What is the, the object? Where are you placing your faith? That's something to be intentional about. So if you want your faith to mature, be intentional uh, about where you place it. Second thing I want to talk about, about maturing faith. For genuine faith to mature, you need to be persistent in using it. So you want to be persistent in using your faith. So faith is not just an ideology that stays behind the scenes in your mind, but it becomes the architecture for a new life, that actually coming to know who God is and what he has promised and, and allowing him to teach you to observe and to interpret the world, there was a prayerful reading of scripture, uh, those sorts of things, um, is meant to call you to live in a new way, that you exercise that faith in practical ways so that you might say it's not just faith, but it's faithfulness. So we believe there's content, there's theology, there's ideas, there's teaching, there's learning, but then we act on those things, that we go into the world faithful. In other words, we believe and then those actions, um, those beliefs change our actions. So verse 6 says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So he's writing to a community saying you have joy, inexpressible, filled with glory. But he's not saying because this has been the, the greatest, this has been 10 years of economic boom, this, this has been the year that you've gotten more awards than your, than your colleagues. He's saying to those who feel like exiles, who are being attacked, who are struggling, you still have joy that's filled with glory. But he writes, he says, but now you have been grieved by various trials. That's a strong word. He's not saying you're disappointed. You know, your faith is shaken a little bit. He's saying you're grieved. So, so this is real suffering. And it's not that you had something go wrong. You're not grieved by this trial, but you're being grieved by various trials. Okay, it's different people suffering in different ways, but it's people suffering in various ways. So it's not just that you're relationally struggling or that your mental health is going or that your body doesn't function as it should and that you're losing hope in the future. It's all of these kinds of things. He's writing to a community that's grieved by various trials. In verse 7, so he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, would result in the salvation. The genuineness of your faith, which means part of the process of maturing is to realize we have superficial faith, we have misplaced faith. But that spiritual work that opens our eyes to the power of God, to his grace, gives us something that then is genuine. So, so that grows and matures even if other forms of our faith are being eroded. Uh, and so this idea of testing, um, life will, will test us. We will face trials. We will face difficulties where we need to exercise our faith. And in the process, we'll find, I didn't understand. I believe the wrong things. Or 
I believed a bit in this, but I actually truly hoped in that. And, and the pressure of life will expose us in a way that, that we don't enjoy. But if it's getting rid of superficial beliefs, that's good. If it's getting rid of misplaced beliefs, that's good because we're maturing. It says, but in the meantime, it's not simply that, that these things are being taken away, but there should be a genuine faith that's coming through. And that's what we want to cultivate. Um, and so, so this testing, the, the kinds of situations in life, every day you need to exercise your faith. And most days are simple enough that it doesn't take great courage or you don't really need to think deeply, uh, but there will be actions that you're called upon. Sim simple things that Jesus teaches, are you going to forgive this person? Are you going to not look down on somebody but show grace? Are you going to uh, rein in your pride? Um, every day there's those kinds of decisions, but there are seasons of life where there are big decisions or big challenges. Maybe there's no decision. That's kind of the worst situation for some of us, where we're utterly passive. Things are happening of which we have no control. How can you exercise faith in them? That's what we're called to. Do you believe that you will be guarded by God's power as you go through it? And then how is that informing your decisions? And so all of our decisions are made by faith. Uh, we mature as we, as we grow in an understanding of Jesus and his teachings and imitate him and grow in a confidence that his ways are actually wise because in specific testing situations, it doesn't seem like this peace-loving, forgiving, kind way is going to work amidst this hostility. So I better uh, not ask permission and then later ask forgiveness so I could get through on this situation. Uh, well, maybe we need to say, well, actually, let, let me trust that God will guard me and be faithful to what he has taught me and trust the outcome to God. And, and therefore, then we start to live differently. And our decisions may seem irrational at times when they're made, at faith, made in faith, but if we have deep convictions about the goodness of God, the rightness of his ways, and, and the trust that he will um, eventually prove that he was worth following, well, then our decisions all of a sudden become more reasonable. So as an analogy here, if you're in a supermarket shopping and you're in the, the meat section and there's one chicken cutlet that's $12 and there's a pack of six chicken cutlets that's $8. As a consumer, what is the rational thing to do? Why would you pay 12 for one when you could pay eight for six? There's an obvious choice there. But here's a fact I'll introduce into this. The $12 piece of chicken has the, the word organic on it. <laughs> So here's this somewhat pale-looking piece of chicken, and here's these beautiful yellow, bright yellow pieces of chicken that are fatty, and I'm getting six of them for $8. Uh, now, what do you believe that the word organic communicates? If, for you, organic conveys, you know what, while this living chicken was alive, the chicken was treated with a certain dignity, allowed to run around and given decent food, that's important. <laughs> and if you believe that the current uh, planet, climate kinds of problems need to be addressed and therefore um, being a little bit more expensive in how we, we, we do these kinds of things is an investment in the future. And if you believe that eating that one chicken, less of it, will be better for your body than eating these beautiful bright yellow pieces of chicken, then paying $12, um, maybe a little bit strange economically, but, but it's a rational decision based on your convictions. Now, if you're a vegan, 
the organic on the chicken won't make any sense, but you'll be grateful that for six dollars you get these organic chickpeas. So that's a different conviction. <laughs> but if your belief is not that organic signals anything, if you think it's a marketing ploy, then it really would be crazy to spend the twelve dollars. So, so, so as you're evaluating those things, the obvious thing is buy the cheaper one unless there's something else undergirding your decision. So what is it you believe? We make decisions that way all the time, and sometimes you have a conviction that people don't agree with, and your decision seems strange. Christians are called exiles because we believe things to be fundamentally true that the world doesn't necessarily see, but Jesus shows us. And therefore, those convictions mean that at times we make decisions in a different way. People may laugh and they may think we're ridiculous, but we're not being irrational. We're being faithful, which means that we have seen, we're trusting, and therefore we're acting. And so you need to exercise your faith, your actions, the things that you believe will change how you live. And if you're not acting on your beliefs, your beliefs won't mature. They're just going to stay in your head. Uh, they need to go from our head through our heart into our lives, and then our faith strengthens and matures. And so this idea of strength, uh, strength, uh, faith strengthening, kind of like a muscle, you know, the, the sort of the popular description of how uh, a bodybuilder or somebody into fitness builds muscle is by challenging uh, whatever muscles you're, you're looking to grow uh, with more than you could handle. And, you know, the simplistic definition is it tears your muscle fibers back and then uh, they come back stronger so that you have more strength. And, of course, other things are needed. It's, it, you know, uh, a bodybuilder spends a lot of time in the gym, but proportionally not very much time at all. One hour in the gym compared to 23 hours of resting, uh, the rest is quite important. The nutrition is quite important. But the straining is also important for growth. All of that's needed. You can't just say, well, if straining is good, then I'm going to strain myself 12 hours a day. It won't work. Um, it's not that faith works identically the same way, but I think by analogy, some of you would recognize sometimes your faith is tested, it's strained. Um, there's something a bit more than you have the capability of understanding and really believing. Uh, what we're told is if it's genuine faith, then if occasionally you find that you no longer can trust in your works or you can trust in your emotions or you can trust in any of these things and you're forced to trust in God and his power and his grace and his promise. That on the other side of that, you and your faith will be stronger. Now, rest is needed. Sometimes we go, you know, sometimes it's a one moment thing and then the next day you bounce back. Sometimes it's periods of time where more than we feel like we're able to bear is put upon us and we are at our, the limits of ourselves. And we go to failure. That's, that's a term that weightlifting people use. You, your muscle fails, but that's actually part of the process towards growth. Sometimes your faith fails. We don't aim for that. We don't rejoice in it. We want to exercise our faith with the strength that we have. But this world will test us and your faith will sometimes give you great victory your faith will sometimes fail, and you will fail. And what we're told is, so now rest. <laughs> what are the nutritious things you need to do as you prayerfully read the scripture and bring all of your confusion and questions to God, as you go to God's people and say, I'm having trouble praying for myself, can you pray for me? Through that period, what we're told is genuine faith will come out stronger. You, a person who then owns genuine faith, will come out stronger. This is not an explanation for why these things happen. 
In the absence of being able to answer the question, why is this happening? The practical question, what am I supposed to do, is be faithful. Whatever you're facing, the things that you believe, the things that you've heard, do them. And then you find yourself saying, but I don't know that they'll work. Or I'm trying and it's not working. And I'm giving up hope. Um, don't fall away. Don't turn away from God. The trust is in the power of God who guards us. And when we hold to that, keeping looking, not giving up, then over time, we're told that God is actually strengthening us while the world aims to weaken us. And that's something that doesn't explain why these things happen, but without a sufficient explanation, it says, what should you do? Keep trusting, keep applying everything, and don't give up. And as we exercise faith, we're told our faith will grow, we will become stronger. So, for your faith to mature, for genuine faith to mature, uh, you need to be specific about where you place it. You need to be persistent in using it. And here's the third thing we'll talk about this morning. You need to be intentional about enjoying it. Um, Peter is writing to people aware that they're having a tough time. And they live at a distance from him, so he can't show up and and help them in a practical way. But he hears that they have joy, but he also hears that they're suffering. And he wants to encourage them to be faithful in their suffering, but also not to just get through this miserable life until one day you have joy, but to realize that if the future is sure, there's something in the present that can start to take hold by faith of the very joy-producing things. And so, um, Peter uh, writes to them about the call to rejoice. Let that be an action, no matter what your circumstances are. You don't, you don't have to pretend you're happy. If things aren't going well, in your prayer, lament. Petition God for change. All of that's part of the ordinary Christian life. But rejoicing is also an ordinary part of the Christian life. It's not meant for special holiday seasons. It's meant to be part of the daily life. So faith allows us to see things that God is showing us that allows us, whether things are going wonderfully or not, to have something of that true reality that strengthens us. And so we need to be intentional about enjoying it. You know, what's wonderful about the Bible, it calls us to believe, and it calls us to believe in an unwavering way, have a firm faith, that then many of us read the Bible and think, boy, I, I must not be like the other Bible readers. Uh, what is it about me that has this wavering faith or, or constantly is confused? And we get encouragement in all sorts of places to say there's this very high standard because strong faith will produce more joy in your life. Um, but none of us are there. And the Bible in many places shows us that God is gracious to weak people. And so one example is Thomas. Unfortunately for him, his contribution to the church is he's known as the doubter, one of Jesus' disciples. A bit unfair. It is one moment that he tells the, 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 his, his friends, the fellow apostles, I find it hard to believe that you claim you've seen Jesus alive from the dead. <laughs> if I was there, I'd be like, I don't know. I, Thomas, we're not supposed to say that, but I don't blame you for thinking. <laughs> but I'd be like, oh yeah, totally, Thomas. What's wrong with you? Come on, get on board. But there's Thomas, known to us as the doubter. And this, this is actually, this is from John 20. It says, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now Thomas would say, I saw the Lord and I saw him crucified. They're saying, no, we saw him after he's been crucified. 
So Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's a pretty strong statement. He's basically saying, we know that this guy was crucified. If you produce somebody else that claims to be him that doesn't look like him, I'm not believing this is a resurrection. I need the actual Jesus that I spent three years with. And when he appears, so I'm not gonna believe your testimony that you saw him, I'm only gonna believe it. Unless that happens, I will never believe. That doesn't sound biblical. Never believe the testimony of the apostles. And in Jesus' kindness, he doesn't say, Peter, go back, tell him this. Jesus shows up. And he says, go ahead, Thomas, if you need to touch me, do it. And I don't know exactly what happens, but the narrative does not record Thomas touching him. He says, unless I touch him, I will never believe. He may have really meant that. But he recognizes Jesus. Jesus shows himself to him, and then Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He then instantly believes. Um, It's encouraging that somebody who had spent years with Jesus faced something. I believe, if you would have asked Thomas in that moment, but don't you think Jesus is the Son of God? Absolutely. Don't you see the wisdom of his teaching? Yes. Didn't you see the power of all the things that he did? Completely. Do you believe he's been raised from the dead? How can that be? That's impossible. And here's Thomas who had all of those advantages, and he said, I can't believe it. But Jesus said, but I'll show myself to you, and then you will. And John writes, and then in believing, you'll have life in his name. So then Jesus, in, in, in uh, verse 29 of John 20, says to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's every one of us. That is nearly every human being who's been born since the time of Christ. We are people who see by faith. We have the testimony. We have the witnesses. We have people who said, we saw it and we're willing to die rather than denying that this is true. And you say, ah, that's compelling. But unless I can touch him myself, I won't believe. What we need is that spiritual renewal. Um, We need somebody to... Uh, to open our eyes. And it's the power of God, not simply to raise Jesus from the dead, but to work within our lives to, to sometimes, through the disappointment of the things that I had to trust in our failing, and sometimes it's simply in the joy. I'm looking for something of substance, and God says, here it is. Our experiences are different. But Jesus says to those who believe, there is a blessing if you haven't seen, and yet you, you understand this to be true, And the blessing is not just that you show yourself to be a credible person. The blessing is that you're receiving the content of what's offered to you. See, Thomas knew that Jesus died on the cross. But what did that mean? It meant maybe that he failed. Or it meant that Jesus was trying to teach a different lesson. But if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then Jesus says, now I've shown that God's power is greater than death. And therefore, death wasn't the failure of the movement. Death was the climactic moment. That God who offers you forgiveness doesn't do so easily, but he does it through his own suffering. God who will redeem and renew the world doesn't do it just by a simple act of his power, but through an expression of power unlike any that we've seen. That Jesus comes in weakness in order to die for the weak so that through the resurrection of the dead, that's what First Peter says, you've been born again by, for, by a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Thomas sees Jesus alive and says, now if there's something more powerful than death, I could believe that the power of that God will guard me, will keep me, 
And I can understand the, then that that death, the testimony of Jesus is the death was a death for you so that you would be forgiven, that you would be reconciled. He's alienated so we can be reconciled. He suffers death so we can suffer life. If you believe that, Jesus says there is blessing. Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe because in believing that, they have now located their faith in what will one day produce joy inexpressible and filled with glory. And that's what we're called to. We're, we're called to trust Jesus Christ who loved us. So Peter says in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Why would this group of people in Western Turkey love Jesus who they've never seen? Because they understood that Jesus gave himself for them and now is at work giving them life. And he says, if you believe that the gospel message is that God has loved you, then even if you haven't seen Jesus visibly and physically, you can love him. And there's blessing in having that kind of love beginning to work in you. In verses eight and nine, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You're starting to obtain the outcome now. The outcome will be that day when all things are made new and we are filled with the fullness of joy inexpressible. In the meantime, we're obtaining it. <laughs> Through faith, we're starting to say, if he has really loved me, if his power is guarding me, if there's an inheritance that cannot be kept, then I could take advantage of every good thing in this world and celebrate every success, and I could keep trusting God through the miseries of this world and every failure. And when you have that, there's blessing to say, on the other side of this, no matter what it is, if I believe in, a, in Jesus who faced death and was raised, I could face failure, I could face struggle, I could face misery, not rejoicing in it, but recognizing that that if this is stripping away all sorts of things and on the other side of it I have a genuine faith, well then it will result in praise and glory. So verse six says, in this you rejoice. He's not saying you're happy people. Boy, of all the people in the world that we've done missionary work, you guys were just the kindest and so we hear about your happiness. He's saying, though you face grievous trials, various trials, in this you rejoice. You have something of substance Christ has done something in history and he has shown it to you in your life. And if you see it, then you have something to rejoice in. Um, there was a book that was popular a number of years ago called Desiring God by a guy named John Piper. And the thesis of the book is uh, that, that God is most glorified when we're most satisfied in him. And so he takes something from our theological tradition that the purpose of our life, the goal was to glorify God and enjoy him. Piper says the best way to glorify God is by enjoying him. And I had a number of friends who were really excited and stirred up with excitement by it. And, um, and I found it exciting too, but I found myself thinking, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard John Piper preach. He's kind of an intense guy. <laughs> and it's kind of like this guy is just living the glorious life uh, and I want what he has. In our day, we might say, I want to be on whatever he's on. <laughs> Filled with the Spirit. Uh, but boy, some people are just not wired like him. Um, and then he came out with this book. And I read the book. It's good. I'm not necessarily recommending it. But the title of the book, and the preface is what encouraged me. <laughs> the title of the book is called, When I Don't Desire, for God, when I Don't Desire God, Fighting for Joy. 
Um, and the impression you get is this is just a guy who he's, he's reached the fullness and he's just excited all the time. And he writes this book, When I Don't Desire God. There, there are times that I don't have that fullness. But what I'm doing is I'm still fighting for joy in the midst of it. And it's, it's that sense of faith to say, well, however I'm feeling at the moment, whatever I'm experiencing, whatever the outlook seems to be to the degree that I can project it out, I'm going to trust that there is an inheritance being kept for me. I'm going to believe that God's power will protect me to a certain measure. There's no guarantees that my fears won't be realized, but, but ultimately, my faith will not fail if it's genuine faith, even if I fail, even if my current beliefs fail. And therefore, I can pursue joy, even if it seems irrational now, even if other people would say, you know, again, we're not looking to ignore our sufferings, but we can face them honestly because within it, there's such a future hope. I thought, well, if the Christian faith is for struggling people, people who have ups but also downs, it doesn't matter how frequently the downs are in proportions to the ups. The question is, is God by his power going to protect you? And we're told if your hope is in Christ, he will. So, believe it. <laughs> Don't start to ask if you believe it enough. Start to ask if Christ is that trustworthy. If he gave himself for me, why would he abandon me now? The cross was the time to come down. He didn't come down. Why would he let go of me in the midst of this? And so I'm gonna trust that. And when we trust that, we find at the other side, there is faith. One of the interesting things about the Old Testament, I don't know exactly how other religions work, but you know, there are all these festivals. A festival like the Day of Atonement is exactly what you expect in religion. Have a day that you remember that you're sinful and fast. Most of us say, yeah, that's the kind of festival that you'd expect a God to have you to keep. But if you look at the, the, the various festivals, the great majority of them are calls to celebrate. In the Old Testament, you know, in the fall, uh, after the, in, in, uh, the harvest, celebrate. In the spring, when we remember how God delivered us from Egypt, celebrate. What's interesting is that the Bible, you think, well, well, well happiness is, is, is a natural byproduct, but God's gonna command us to be miserable. God warns us to be honest and open, and sometimes that's hard. But the Bible commands us to rejoice. <laughs> it says there is such goodness of what God has done and what God will do and what God, who God is, that it would be unusual to say the paradigm is to get through this miserable life so one day we'll be paid for it. That's not how the biblical faith works. The Christian life is God is so good that even if you don't see it in fullness now, rejoice in it. And so rejoicing here is an action. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's about to give them all sorts of advice, all sorts of counsel, but he begins with an act of rejoicing. And I want you to weave into your lifestyle the intention of rejoicing. If we're not um, persistent in it, if we're not intentional about it, if we're not exercising our faith in that way, we will weaken. We'll find that we're just not happy because we haven't learned how to be happy. Um, this gathering is meant to be an aid to you. Let's come every week and, and maybe the person next to you singing will help you. You know, we sing that doxology. In, in, in our worship, we sing to God. In that doxology, we're saying, all you who are of tender heart, oh, praise him, oh, praise him. There's an acknowledgement that we're weak when we come together. So it's not simply that in singing, you will experience joy, but in hearing other people. So we're singing, you know, when you hear the doxology, the people next to you are saying, you of tender heart, praise him. 
and that's meant to be a help. Other people are, are here to encourage and exhort you to have that joy. You don't need to be happy all the time. Don't feel guilty if you're not happy a lot of the time. But there is a joy that comes with Christian faith. And if you look to Christ, and if you come to know him, and if you start to live according to the way he invites you to live, um, practice rejoicing, and you'll find that it's not just a bare exercise to build up happiness, but it's actually a, a product of genuine faith. And so, life is hard, but it's not meant to be utterly miserable. Um, don't get through the life without enjoying God, what he promised, and obtaining now some installment of the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's have that maturing faith as we go. Let me pray for us. Our Father, even as we talk about these things, uh, all of us, I'm sure, have questions. All of us are struggling. Some of us may be coming in such a difficult season that maybe it stings a bit to hear about a joy that's possible. Lord, we know that in your gathering, um, it's not just the, the upright and the perfect who are invited, but it's the, the struggling, the sorrowful, the failing. Would we thank you for that ongoing invitation to say that, the, that you will show us things and the more that we see, the more we will be strengthened and the more we're strengthened, uh, the more that we can rejoice. Lord, may every person in the hearing of this, those who are present with us physically, those who are on Zoom, even those who may in a year or two listen to a recording of this. Lord, whoever has access to this gospel message, may your spirit apply it to our hearts so that we uh, put our faith in really what's substantive and that it produces joy. And uh, Lord, protect us as we go back into the world this week. Guard us by your power. Um, but help us to take every opportunity to practice our faith uh, in whatever situations we'll find ourselves this week. Prepare us, strengthen us, Grant us success, and uh, Lord, grant us even a measure of joy where we fail. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.